Welcome everybody to this, our seventh summer lecture in the Rare Book School Summer Series. We're very grateful to the Albert and Shirley Small Special Collections Library and to the Harrison Institute for helping to make these lectures possible. It was a dark and stormy afternoon. <laughs> and they came in droves anyway. And they came in part because Margaret Stetz can only be described, well, perhaps in other ways too, but as a prodigious scholar, a truly, truly prodigious scholar. And um, throughout her career, she has distinguished herself. She was graduated summa cum laude from Queens College in the City University of New York and went on to the University of Sussex for a master's degree and then went to some old school in Cambridge, Massachusetts, founded in 1638, I think, for her, for, for her uh, second uh, master's degree and her doctoral degree, whereupon she came to the University of Virginia and then Georgetown, and now the University of Delaware, where she is the May and uh, Robert Carter Professor of Women's Studies and Professor of the Humanities at the University of Delaware. Um, she's the author, author of many books and numerous studies, but I'd like to point out a couple that she's done with Mark Samuels Lasner, who is sitting next to her, the Yellow Book of Centenary Exhibition, 1994, which is the most important statement made on the Yellow Book, in my view. England in the 1890s, Literary Publishing and the Bodley Head. And England in the 1880s, Old Guard and Avant Garde. Um, remarkably, she has curated or co-curated nine or ten major exhibitions on Victorian publishing history and on art. You see why prodigious is the right word, and I've only told you about a quarter of the story because the stage belongs to her. Please welcome Margaret. for not slipping up and saying pretentious instead of prodigious. <laughs> uh, and thank you so much for that introduction. Thank you so much for inviting me. Thanks to Michael Suarez, of course. Thanks to Barbara Heritage. Thanks to Roger Williams. Thanks to Amanda Nelson. Thank you to everybody. Thank you to everybody for coming in the rain. Um, I am an academic interloper. Academics usually begin by saying, this work is part of a larger project. <laughs> Mine isn't. It's a digression and a diversion. As there are so many collectors and managers of collections here, I want to make a pitch for a figure who should be better known, discussed, exhibited, and collected. And yet, this is someone about whom I am profoundly ambivalent, as you'll see. But the political unease with which he inspires me seems all the more reason to study him and for me to acknowledge the power of his aesthetic vision. 
there are four little books, examples of John Goodall's work that are passing around, I hope, among you. Uh, there's also a, a handout, which I hope everybody got. But let me begin by showing you some dust jackets, first the front and then the back of each one. I'm just going to watch these go by. So, that's the back of Edwardian summer, front Edwardian Christmas, and back, front story of an English village, and back. Front, Edwardian holiday, and back. Front, Edwardian season, and back. Front, Victorians abroad, <laughs> and back. Front, before the war, an autobiography in pictures, and back. Front, Edwardian entertainments. And back. Front, above and below stairs. Front is above. Back is below. Front, story of a castle. And back. Front, story of a high street, and back. Front, story of a farm, and back. Front, story of the seashore, that's the American edition. It was, I think, seaside in the British, and back. Front, his last book, Great Days of a Country House, and back. And those were in chronological order. So, that's it for slides. I'm not giving an illustrated lecture. In an illustrated talk, images appear on the screen at regular intervals and accompany the words you hear. You're meant to listen closely to those words, then to glance at the screen at the appropriate time so that you divide your attention briefly before shutting out the visual claims being made by what's in front of you, often by what's left up there for several minutes after the speaker has already moved on to remarks that no longer relate precisely to the image. This dynamic tells you, without anyone explicitly saying so, that there is a hierarchy at work. The illustrations are in a subordinate position to the words. If they sometimes provide you with information that runs counter to what the speaker is presenting, if they invite your mind to wander or suggest interpretations different from the ones you're being offered, then the convention is for you to ignore those thoughts or at least Hold them for the question and answer period when the flow of words is over. We know how to read these power relations in an illustrated lecture because they mirror the principles behind most illustrated books, especially behind the books that we encounter first as children, 
which teach us how to read in general. Authors and artists are sometimes one and the same. When they're not, the author's name usually appears first, the artist's after it. And artists, we learn, are replaceable. Some of us may have come across Beatrix Potter's story, The Tale of Peter Rabbit, in editions illustrated by other artists rather than by Potter herself. For instance, the 1970 Little Golden Book illustrated by Adriana Mazza Saviazzi, or the 1997 Pudgy Pal Board Book. I love that, Pudgy Pal, issued by Grosset and Dunlap and illustrated by Florence Graham. We are unlikely, however, to have found any book that reproduces Beatrix Potter's images from the 1901 tale of Peter Rabbit and puts them to use in the service of a wholly different fictional narrative by someone else. Indeed, such a concept is almost unimaginable. So well-trained are we in the notion that words are primary and are the texts worth preserving, adapting, and interpreting. They may be turned into alternative forms of pictorial works, such as graphic novels, or into wholly oral media, such as audiobooks. Either way, they are worthy of separate afterlives. Illustrations, on the contrary, are usually defined by their dependent situation, and I'm almost tempted to say by their monogamy. Like Victorian wives, they exist in relation to the single verbal text to which they were originally joined. If I seem to be pushing a gender analogy of masculinized narratives and feminized images with the former allowed greater <coughs> autonomy, then consider the old language of critical judgment, which asked whether or not illustrations were faithful. <laughs> there are exceptions to the pattern I've described. Perhaps the most common one, which also forms, forms part of our childhood experience, is the picture book, frequently written as a single word with both nouns run together, though the spell check program on my computer instantly flagged this as incorrect when I typed it. And some scholars still prefer to separate the words with a space. As Carrie Hintz and Eric Tribunella explain in Reading Children's Literature, A Critical Introduction, 2013, quote, whereas the text of an illustrated book can stand alone without the pictures, a picture book relies on the interdependence of word and image to advance the story. The picture book, moreover, quote, also relies heavily on its design and production to make meaning, and thus suggests greater equality among all these material elements, a model of democratic partnership that rarely exists in the illustrated book or the illustrated lecture. Yet the picture book is still subject to subordination within a larger hierarchy of value. Although Martin Salisbury and Morag Stiles begin their 2012 survey of the genre by declaring that, quote, we see the art of picture book making increasingly crossing over with the book arts, so that, quote, a new understanding of this hybrid art form will perhaps begin to emerge, end quote, Nonetheless, they title their own study 
children's picture books, the art of visual storytelling. And as they concede in their introduction, quote, of course the word picture book is usually preceded by the word children's. And they go on, quote, traditionally, it has been regarded as a stepping stone to accepted notions of literacy for three to seven-year-olds, end quote. Being associated with a rudimentary stage of human development rarely makes for elite cultural status. <laughs> and then there is Hintz and Tribunella's other category or subcategory of objects that teach us about textual relationships, quote, wordless or nearly wordless picture books, which rely purely on their images to tell a story. Here, the artistic medium takes on an even greater significance as, quote, each medium creates a definite mood. For example, crayon drawings are traditionally associated with the drawings of children. Oil paintings bring to mind high art. In these works, quote, the narrative could emerge in any number of ways. There is, nonetheless, an assumption implicit within the rhetoric of Hintz and Tribunella's definition that a story will or perhaps even ought to emerge and that narrative, linear narrative, is the goal. Eve Bern, in her introduction to Art, Narrative, and Childhood, 2003, attempts to break away from this expectation by referring instead to, quote, the cohesive patterning of a text as its focal point, the thing which will, quote, hold the experience together in the mind during the time it is being experienced. Thus, texts which are, quote, represented visually depend on spatial cohesion. In picture books, vectors, gaze, color, shading, and spatial organization act as visual conjunctions, end quote. For Bern, understanding the specific affordances, that's a word that she likes, affordances, the possibilities inherent within a given medium is crucial. For example, quote, Picture books may include many of the visual and verbal cohesive elements of film, but will also include the use of single or double page layout not afforded by film as a medium. Barron's discussion of likeness and unlikeness to film in this context, in the context of describing how picture books communicate with us, is useful here for me as a transition. I'd like to spend the rest of my time concentrating on the British artist John S. Goodall, born in 1908, died in 1996, a creator of wordless mass market picture books, whose most popular works, which were sold on both sides of the Atlantic, coincided with a particular moment and movement in British film production. This was the rise in the 1980s through the 1990s of what the film historian Andrew Higson and others have called English heritage cinema. As Higson writes, quote, certain English costume dramas of the period seem to articulate a nostalgic 
and conservative celebration of the values and lifestyles of the privileged classes, and in doing so, an England that no longer existed seemed to have been reinvented as something fondly remembered and desirable. Such films seem to represent a particular relationship to the past, hence the heritage label. There is every reason to see Goodall's wordless depictions of British social history in the form of both small and not-so-small picture books marketed primarily to children, which began appearing in the late 1970s not merely as precursors to the success of the heritage film industry, but as aids in helping to support and ensure that. Goodall's books, which foregrounded in visual terms an aesthetically glorious English past, and which sometimes juxtaposed that with representations of a far from beautiful English present, arrived on the scene in the immediate wake of ITV's hit series, Upstairs Downstairs, which is something that Andrew Hickson does not mention in his study of heritage cinema. Upstairs Downstairs, produced by John Hawksworth for London Weekend Television, ran from 1971 to 1975 and proved just as great a sensation in the US through its showing on PBS's Masterpiece Theater. British and American viewers alike eagerly consumed its saga of life in an aristocratic London household during the first third of the 20th century and its spectacle of elaborate period gowns, starched servants' uniforms, and morning rooms furnished with leather Chesterfield sofas. And in the interest of full disclosure, uh, my partner Mark and I have a leather Chesterfield sofa that we bought because we saw upstairs downstairs. So never let anyone tell you that images themselves are not powerful. <laughs> Reproduced in a series of books that started in 1976 with an Edwardian summer and an Edwardian Christmas, John Strickland Goodall's watercolors complemented the nostalgic fantasies in which contemporary British film and television trafficked. The wide circulation of his books, which were issued primarily by Macmillan in the UK and under the imprint of Margaret K. McElderry in the US, reaching not only children, but also a growing adult fan base, certainly affirmed the sort of conservative impulse that brought Margaret Thatcher to prominence and ensured her hold on the office of Prime Minister from 1979 to 1990. These artifacts accomplished their ideological work wordlessly or almost wordlessly by serving as pictorial polemics, thus demonstrating the ability of picture books to make political impact and moreover, to do so through visual means and materials alone. Just going to break for a sip of water. Several of Goodall's books employed the phrase, the story of, dot, 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 
in their titles, suggesting that they embodied a form of unspoken narrative. All were organized according to some kind of temporal arrangement, whether the organizing principle was the natural cycle from morning to night or from the start of summer to its end, the human life cycle with its passages from birth to childhood to maturity, the cycles of social life composed of arrivals at rituals, gatherings and entertainments, and departures, or the cycles of life for architectural structures and communal spaces, from their flourishing to their decay, and very occasionally their restoration. A number of these were movable books, either in pop-up format or with half pages to turn and to use in transforming the images of the whole pages. But they were also transformational books in a different sense, as works that celebrated an idyllic English past and implicitly mourned the transformation of a nation through its cultural, political, and aesthetic decline. Whatever individual stories they might or might not have contained all presented the same master argument and did so, moreover, not only through each sequence of consecutive images, but through each image on its own. The gorgeousness of the representations on every single page or half page of English life in earlier centuries and decades, the beauty, delicacy, and order of the compositions spoke silently through purely visual means and stood as a rebuke to the present. And yet, despite the reactionary social philosophy that underpinned them, these were radical texts when it came to their status as books breaking generic boundaries and posing problems, both at the time of their publication and today, for those interested in classifying them. Perhaps because they have defied easy class easy category I can get that word, give me a moment. Easy categorization. Yay. Easy categorization by librarians, collectors, and historians, they remain undervalued in every sense. Unlike, for instance, the picture letters of Beatrix Potter and the books that grew out of them, which were the subject in winter 2012 through 2013 of an exhibition at the Morgan Library and Museum, neither the watercolors of which John S. Goodall's books were composed, nor the books themselves, have enjoyed any such display in an institution of high art let alone one with labels by a scholarly curator attesting to their importance. And here, I'd like to make a pitch for someone to organize such an exhibition, perhaps even putting Goodall's work alongside that of someone like Raymond Briggs, whose leftist laborite picture books filled with figures of working class uh, men and women were contemporary with Goodall's. 
Goodall's few solo shows occurred mainly at the Christopher Wood Gallery in London during the 1980s and early 1990s. Shows such as Home and Abroad, 1990, an exhibition of recent watercolors by John Strickland Goodall, R.I., R.B.A., which ran from only 12 to 20 December 1990 and did not distinguish between works that were created for the picture books and those that were not. The emphasis was on Goodall as a watercolorist in general, rather than as a pioneer in pictorial books. But he certainly was a pioneer, as well as someone who reached back, self-consciously, to align himself with 19th and early 20th century traditions of illustrated books, children's books, and picture books. His debt to British past masters is perhaps more obvious in some of the work that he published prior to that Edwardian-themed series of titles that began in 1976. All of those earlier books centered upon animals behaving like humans. Goodall paid homage to Beatrix Potter in particular throughout his Patty Pork series, which started in 1968 and continued for nearly 20 years on and off always featuring a well-dressed but rather hapless turn-of-the-century pig as protagonist, a figure who owed much to both Pigling Bland and Little Pig Robinson. Similarly, the mice, who starred in Goodall's Naughty Nancy and Shrubatina series, beautifully turned out in their Victorian and Edwardian costumes, but prone to getting into scrapes, shared the mischievous personalities as well as the appearance of Potter's bad mice. Goodall's 1972 The Midnight Adventures of Kelly, Dot, and Esmeralda had its origins in the rather conventional genre of children's fiction that Lois Rostow Kuznets surveyed in her 1994 study When Toys Come Alive a form in which such great predecessors as A.A. Milne had excelled. Kelly, the woolly koala, Dot, the pinafore-wearing doll, and Esmeralda, the toy mouse in an Edwardian party frock, work an imaginative variation on the genre, however, by leaving their toy shelf at the stroke of 12 and entering the watercolor that hangs on the wall behind them. Thus, not only the fictional characters, but the book itself and the viewers, too, quite literally break the frame and move into another dimension. Once inside that work of art, the toys discover not merely the landscape depicted in it, but a larger pastoral world beyond that landscape as they row upriver and into a previously unseen village inhabited by animals who walk upright, wear turn-of-the-century costumes, and live in cottages and caravans. They even come upon a traveling circus act with a dangerously entrepreneurial cat as ringmaster and a troop of acrobatic frogs, I love those frogs, before re-emerging from, uh, from an unchanged scene in the original watercolor and climbing over the picture frame to return to their shelf. This is both a wordless narrative and a truly extraordinary visual text that encourages the spectator to think not only of works of art, but of representations 
of works of art in books as both windows and doorways rather than as flat surfaces, to see Goodall's book itself as opening deeper and deeper into and onto another plane of existence with every turn of the full and half pages. Is its visual story then about the nighttime roving of animate toys? Or instead, about the possibilities of the picture book itself as a medium of exploration, which can propel the viewer into a world at once, at once fantastic and grounded in an idealized vision of English history. Despite its innovative character, a book such as Kelly, Dot, and Esmeralda still fits comfortably within accepted labels of the sort familiar to users of WorldCat. Thus, we find it there under the subject headings Dolls, Juvenile Fiction, Stories Without Words, and Children's Stories in English, 1900 Texts. But the series of works on which Goodall embarked in 1976, beginning with an Edwardian summer, raise thornier questions of genre and classification. Here it seems the catalogers have felt compelled, having no single appropriate term, to throw out a list of subjects as though in a game of ring toss, hoping that something will land on a peg. Quote, Great Britain, history, 20th century, pictorial works, juvenile literature, Great Britain, history, Edward VII, 1901 to 1910, Juvenile Works, Stories Without Words. In the case of another of Goodall's wordless picture books, Victorians Abroad, 1980, there's an additional subject heading, Pictorial Works, Juvenile Fiction. Even though the book contains no conventional story of any sort that would justify the term fiction, and nothing to indicate that the desired audience for it is juvenile, not even representations of children as the main figures. Goodall's Victorians Abroad opens instead with a note to suggest that what follows will aspire to the status of nonfiction and to the authority of social documentary. Quote, this book shows the English traveling abroad at various times during Queen Victoria's long reign. The first pages depict the grand tour in the 1840s and the last ones a voyage to India in the 1890s, end quote. Victorians Abroad was something new, though it was inspired by something old. By late 19th century illustrated books such as the one titled Abroad, 1882, designed to appeal to children, which combined verses by Felix Lee about a tour of France with images by Thomas Crane and Ellen Houghton. Abroad, nonetheless, was meant to reflect contemporary life in 1882, whereas Goodall's Victorians Abroad conjured up scenes supposedly from history, but airbrushed, or should I say paintbrushed, into ideal form by someone who had never been a witness to them. In that more political sense, it was indeed fiction. All of the wordless books about the past with representations of human figures rather than anthropomorphized animals that John S. Goodall issued from 1976 onwards pose questions about genre, audience, purpose, 
and fictional or non-fictional status, all two are seductive. When an Edwardian summer appeared in British shops in 1976, it might have looked to casual browsers like just another children's book, small in format and with a brightly colored dust jacket, but several features distinguished it immediately. First, there was the dust jacket illustration, which wrapped around from the back cover to the front, inviting the buyer to remove it from the book and to spread it flat in order to read the image properly from left to right. Then there was the nature of that image, which followed a recognizably cinematic pattern, imitating the pan of a camera. It began on the left-hand side with the close-up of an interior, elaborately furnished with objects of the past, a potted palm, dark red patterned wallpaper, and displaying what might be described as a lady's taste, matching ceramic ewers, a lace table runner, a folded fan, and a large china bust of a conventionally pretty female head. The most distinctive element of the still-life composition of historical props, however, was the presence of several photographs in antique frames, or rather of several watercolors representing photographs, creating a trompe l'oeil effect. These painted images were, moreover, of photographic portraits, capturing what would seem to be family members, both adults and children, to suggest that this was the corner of a house. As the viewer's eyes moved rightward, they were led toward the object behind the palm fronds, a drawn back curtain, and beyond that, to a window, framing multiple perspectives. In the foreground was a vase filled with pink roses in full bloom, their stems drooping under the heavy weight of the blossoms. Farther away and below, on a perfectly green lawn, two ladies and two men in turn-of-the-century costume played croquet. In the background strolled another lady, not a mere woman, but a lady bearing a parasol as a marker of her status, followed by a little dog. And beyond the terrace lay what can only be described as a pleasant prospect of the sort enshrined in paintings by John Constable or Paul Sandby. Trees and shrubs, the faint outlines of a village in the central clearing, and then farther in the distance, water and gentle hills with a cloudless sky above. If the parting of the curtains made them equivalent to theater curtains, then the tableau onto which they opened was a spectacle of golden light, verdant natural growth, wealthy people at play, and a peaceful location preserved in time. Over this threshold, between the domestic space and the pastoral landscape, floated an iconic butterfly, signaling the ephemeral beauty of the season and of the scene itself, poised in flight beneath the name John S. Goodall, the book's title, and one more thing, words, all in capital letters, which read, Forward, by Harold Macmillan. Certainly, it was unusual for a children's book to have a forward written by the former chairman of the publishing firm that issued it, but it was all the more so when that chairman of Macmillan happened not only to be the chancellor of Oxford University, but a former conservative MP who, from 1957 to 1963, had been prime minister of Britain. 
If the dust jacket image hinted at a political significance to Goodall's idyllic representation of an English country house-centered past, then the presence of Harold Macmillan's name sealed the deal. An Edwardian summer became the first of Goodall's best-selling small format books, mostly priced from £1.95 to £3.50 in Britain and from £4.95 to £8.95 for the US market, devoted to romanticizing class-stratified life, to quote a 1983 title also by Goodall, above and below stairs, set either in the Victorian or Edwardian eras. It was also the first to make an implicit visual protest, a pictorial argument against the architectural styles, social practices, and cultural tastes of the present. In a now famous comparison, Edward Byrne-Jones once likened that late Victorian masterpiece of book design, the Kelmscott Chaucer, to a pocket cathedral, alluding to John Ruskin's description of a medieval illuminated missile as a, quote, fairy cathedral bound together to carry in one's pocket. Goodall's late 20th century series of little rectangular volumes devoted to glorifying the English past, particularly of the preceding century, could more rightly be called pocket country houses. They put into the hands of children and parents alike, as well as adult admirers without children, page after page of images as dazzling and reverential as anything to be found in a stained glass window, though they offered views not of saints, but of aristocratic couples gracefully waltzing across enormous ballrooms, ladies and gentlemen at ease in drawing rooms resplendent with family portraits, antique clocks and polar bear rugs, and groups of dashing pink coat-wearing hunters on horseback preparing to ride to hounds. In the process, these uncritically nostalgic evocations of a world not merely of privilege, but sometimes of extreme privilege, turned their creator into what Christopher Wood, the London gallery owner, called, quote, one of England's best-loved artists. William Morris saw the beauty of his Kelmscott Press books, his pocket cathedrals, as an agent for social change. What widespread or lasting effects might have come from Macmillan's release in the 1970s and 1980s of Goodall's pocket country houses with their idealized portrayals of a homogeneous English identity defined by a landed gentry class is a matter for speculation. Throughout Goodall's series of small format books that depicted human beings rather than animals in turn-of-the-century English settings, laborers were rarely highlighted except as adjuncts to the activities of the upper middle class or aristocratic characters. The working classes instead were background figures, shopkeepers or shop assistants cheerfully selling goods, or simple cottagers gladly welcoming their sophisticated visitors to their homes, which invariably had portraits of the late queen hanging on the wall, or farmers and their wives smilingly offering cups of fresh milk to travelers on bicycle tours. Most often, however, the images of workers were of domestic servants, 
particularly those attached to country houses who ranged from benevolent nursemaids wheeling prams to rosy-cheeked cooks turning out elaborate feasts to butlers efficiently overseeing multitudes of parlormaids and footmen scurrying up and down staircases. Whether in an Edwardian summer, 1976, an Edwardian Christmas, also 1976, an Edwardian holiday, 1978, an Edwardian season, 1979, or Edwardian entertainments, 1982, in every case, these representations of servants emphasize their utility, the submersion of their identities into their demand, uh, sorry, into their domestic functions, and the sturdiness of their physiques none of which looked underfed or seemed subject to illness or abuse. Goodall replicated this pattern in Victorians Abroad, 1979, his paean to Britain's lost empire. Abroad turns out first to mean France, to which he had already sent his nameless cast of beautifully attired upper-class English figures in an Edwardian holiday, as well as Italy. But it also includes the colonial outposts of Egypt, where an English lady poses atop a camel near the Sphinx. Africa, where big game hunting takes place. And India, at the height of the Raj, site of a lavish garden party and a boat ride down the river. At each location, servants appear in various styles of indigenous dress or undress, but they show no evidence of poor diet, poor treatment, or even poor attitude toward their white masters. Contrary to what decades of anti-colonial activism and of post-colonial politics might have suggested, in this revisionist history, British imperialism turned out to be quite a good thing. No wonder that in his 1996 obituary of John Goodall for The Independent, Christopher Wood referred to the artist as, quote, the last of the Victorians. To give him that label, however, is to lose sight of what was also innovative and daringly modern about his books. If he was not the inventor of the graphic memoir or picto memoir as a form, he was nevertheless among its earliest practitioners and probably responsible for the first bestseller in that genre. A crossover text, moreover, aimed at both the children's and adult markets. His 1981 Before the War, 1908 to 1939, was, as the subtitle on the front of its dust jacket announced, an autobiography in pictures. Organized chronologically, it used watercolors alone, with its text confined almost wholly to identification of place and or date and or event, as in 1914 printed above a night scene of a family in silhouette lit from above by the beams of a zeppelin hovering in the sky. Or Hampstead, 25 March 1933, accompanying an image of the church where Goodall married his fiancée, Margaret Nichol, on that day. The single exception, the sole declarative sentence, came at the end with the final two-page spread, which reported all in capital letters that, quote, my parents died in 1934 and 1937, and Rivers Court became our home. To explain how Goodall, now depicted in an officer's uniform, his wife, daughter, cat, and dog became the residence of a stately home in Norfolk on the eve of the Second World War. Perhaps the most remarkable feature of this volume was its creation of the appearance of a 3D, 3D collage on a flat surface, 
through trompe l'oeil watercolor versions of photographs meant to look like period objects removed from a family album and scattered across the pages of the book. Sometimes the corner of one, quote, photo lay atop another to produce an appearance of multi-dimensional layering. The effect on the viewer of these faux photographs was to authenticate Goodall's wordless account of what the past had been like to provide seemingly objective documentation of impressionistic visual memories and to lend them a reality and authority that went beyond the merely personal. Thus, before the war, 1908 to 1939, made its wordless claim to be the memoir not only of the artist and not only of the professional classes into which he had been born, but to be, in a sense, a memoir of England itself, of an England in which housemaids scrubbed the front steps, prosperous young gentlemen went off to Harrow School, ladies wore picture hats and men wore top hats when attending the cricket matches at Lord's, and well-born heterosexual couples made their engagements official with notices in the society periodical The Queen. It was the same sense of celebrating and also mourning a communal political and social identity that Harold Macmillan's forward to an Edwardian summer had captured with its opening sentence, framed in the first person plural, quote, why do we look back with such indulgent nostalgia upon the brief era of Edward VII, the period depicted in this book for it is not perhaps one of the more exciting periods in our island's history. Of course, rendering the decade unexciting, as Goodall's book deliberately did, was only possible through its complete erasure of the visual record of conflict, of the Boer War, for instance, and women's suffrage, for another. Both before and after telling his own story through pictures in Before the War, Goodall produced an equally ambitious series of imaginary visual biographies of English places, often semi-rural, and of English domestic architecture, including the story of an English village, 1978, story of a castle, 1986, story of a high street, 1987, story of a farm, 1989, story of the seaside, 1990, and great days of a country house, 1991. Opening in a suspiciously clean and tidy-looking medieval or Elizabethan past, these books of watercolors invariably moved forward in time through the equivalent of snapshots taken in succeeding centuries toward images of present-day decline and degradation. The once neat and orderly village becomes a traffic-congested nightmare and victim of urban sprawl. The castle becomes a ruin, its exterior defaced with signs pointing mobs of visitors to, quote, restaurant, car park, toilets. This last word signaling the presence, to use the phrase that Nancy Mitford familiarized, of those dreaded non-you speakers of English. And the country house, too, becomes a tourist site in which a guide lectures to an ill-dressed crowd of gawkers, long-haired men wearing shorts and carrying knapsacks, and women sporting too tight orange trouser suits. The presence of that rabble has, however, saved the country house 
with its money for admissions. In Great Days of a Country House, Goodall's final picture book, the image of invasion by ugliness has an air of resignation, if not acceptance. But in all of Goodall's oeuvre, there is no more depressing and distressing image than the one that concludes Above and Below Stairs, 1983. The orderly class segregation of the preceding pages representing aristocrats and servants from the 11th century through 1910 living in dignity and material beauty ends with the jumble and confusion labeled in capital letters today in a bedsit at the top of a house where the maids would have slept a blue jeans clad woman of indeterminate class cigarette dangling from her lips now prepares her own meal on a wooden dresser top as garish posters of American pop culture icons, Marilyn Monroe and Elvis, stare down from the wall opposite. So, why does any of this matter? John S. Goodall is hardly remembered at all now, and his picture books, none of which are in print, are rarely mentioned in studies of children's books, or of wordless books, or of 20th century book arts. Search for his name on the website of the Eric Carle Museum of Picture Book Art, and you will come up instead with Jane Goodall and her chimpanzee companions, none of them wearing Edwardian tea gowns. <laughs> Why should we care that Goodall's volumes of ravishing watercolors, which were often described on their dust jacket flaps as for all ages, but invariably sold as children's books, wound up long ago in the Christmas stockings of a generation of young British readers. Did their pictorial fantasies about the splendor of English heritage properties and about the rightness of privilege and of traditional social hierarchies have any effect? Did their highly politicized lessons in visual literacy stick? I close with a fantasy of my own. Imagine a little boy born to a very well-to-do family in, let us say, the year 1966, who might have been given an Edwardian summer and an Edwardian Christmas when he was 10. Would the images in these wordless picture books have influenced him or at least reinforced the conservative ideology he encountered at home and at school, perhaps at Eton? Could there have been consequences later? What if we gave a name to that little boy of that generation and class? What if we called him David Cameron? <laughs> Think about it. Thank you. <laughs>
But yes, you can go to auction websites and they will give you the, the dimensions there. Um, usually the things that are sold at auction though, and this is why I can't you know, quite answer your question, are not the images that appeared in the books. They are the watercolors that he did just on these painted watercolors. So I don't really know the dimensions of those watercolors done for the books, but I'm guessing it would be about the same as the others, which are a little bit bigger than the open books. And uh, the ones that are sold tend to sell for about 1,000 to 2,000 pounds. So when I say undervalued, I mean, that seems to me really cheap for those sort of beautiful watercolors. My knowledge of him is unfortunately restricted when the passing around kind of comment. One thing that I find extraordinary is the horizontal nature of, of his composition, mm -hmm. the horizontality of it. Yes. And it's amazing the consistent, although it's yes. broken up by what you might want to point out is uh, more uh, breaking the barrier, breaking the fourth wall. Yeah. The fourth phrase about it. Could you comment on the horizontality of it? Well, you know, that, that's why I use the phrase cinematic uh, because it, it does feel often as though your eyes are the camera lens moving across from left to right. I mean, of course, we, we read from left to right. But yes, it, it's it's a, an almost exaggerated movement <coughs> taking in that way. Of course, if you're, you're flipping the, the books half pages and the books that have the half pages, that will emphasize that sort of effect. But yes, it is very much um, reading the image from left to right as though the camera were traveling across. It's, it's hard to think of film in which the camera moves from right to left. Well, maybe, yeah. <laughs> but yes, but when you're very consciously and carefully disrupting the expectation, the expectation is always Um, on that photocopy. This is 
John Goodall's album, uh, which has no author attached to it. Everybody assumes it is John Goodall himself who has done this album and who is writing about himself and in the third person, which seems a little bit odd because there are sort of biographical bits. Um, but this is as close as we can get to a bibliography of any kind, just this kind of list. And from that list, which is John Goodall's own list, an Edwardian summer is missing. So why I wrote it in. Yeah, I'm just fascinated by why. Why? Can we almost suppress that first important book? Yes. Oh, right. <laughs> why? Why is there a I think we should continue the conversation in the reception room of Fair Book School. Um, but before we do, I'd like to uh, thank Margaret with a poster from her talk and a note from the staff. And uh, please join me in thanking you. Thank <laughs> you.